take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 16. 16 episodes now, the Life of Red podcast. Here, joined by my good friend from upstairs in our building, Caroline. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Hey, how's it going? Good. Um, So, you do quite a lot of things, but uh, the reason I wanted to have you on Mm -hmm. was. You're a journalist, I first am a journalist. and foremost. Yes. Um, both on air and writing? Yeah, that's correct. I yep. got that. On and off air. Perfect. Where? What do you like better? Um, <laughs> are they different? They are different. So actually, I always thought that if I was a journalist, my full-time gig would be writing. I didn't think it would be radio, but I did take a radio class um, in journalism school. I went to Carleton, and we were taught by this really lovely professor and I kind of fell in love with it, but I never really took it again. Cause again, I liked it, but I didn't think it was something I would do. So I think I, I like both for different reasons. Mm. I like to talk. <clears throat> so the part of radio appeals to that, but I do really love kind of writing and getting to hear somebody's story and getting to help share that. So, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so you never really thought you would end up doing radio other than just one class and all of a sudden the opportunity presented itself. Yeah, exactly. And if anything, I went into journalism school thinking I was meant to be on TV and I came out of it hating TV. I hated TV. Um, It was not for me. (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, still liking writing. And I graduated and I ended up with um, a job outside of journalism and realized it really just wasn't for me. And this opportunity presented itself and I just decided to go for it. And I'm really glad I did that. Interesting. So, um, it's a pretty, I don't know what the word is. I, I don't want to say crazy, but it's a tumult, tumultuous time for journalists right now. It is in so many regards. The industry is really tough. There were layoffs across Canada yeah. right, just a few weeks yeah. ago. Um, Canadian Press, which is a wire service we depend on, their Atlantic Bureau, which does some yeah, incredible saw journalism. That. Um, it's tumultuous in terms of how people view journalists, right? How people think that we're not necessary people think that journalists aren't telling the truth or that they're out to get them Mm -hmm. um and it's also tumultuous i think here in canada because a lot of local and community papers have recently closed and we have an election coming up and a great way to hear from different parts of this country that we don't always hear from were those papers right and all of that i think is impacted by journalism and then you add all of the stories that are happening and how we're all trying to make sense of it so there's certainly a lot going on and it's not a dull moment and mm-hmm. then you have all of these journalists trying to navigate the new west block at the house of commons which was quite <laughs> comical i was there for the first day that it opened and like we were kind of like lost sheep trying to figure our way around yeah i guess some of those on the on the hill would have been there for years and years and years and years and now it's almost like you entered a new workplace exactly it looks uh, gorgeous but <laughs> certainly a bit of mayhem <laughs> um where do you think this I, I i often think of this problem or this question myself is when did all of a sudden this different perspective on journalism and on the news turn kind of ugly? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm of the opinion, like, I have I grew up in a digital age, so, you know, you too. So I've mm-hmm. been seeing, seeing normal stuff on the internet, but I don't understand. Like, it just seemed like it happened overnight. Like, it was just a quick snap that journalists and the news was the enemy. And I don't know where I can quite pinpoint that turning point yeah i don't know if i could either and i always want to be careful talking about things in canada just because i know that i can be very american-centric sometimes and especially with this being an election year i think i try to like look at america but then also make sure i'm paying more attention to canada 
But I mean, it's really hard to not pinpoint the 2016 election in fake mm. news. Um, but I think too, right? Journalism journalists get it wrong, and when we do get it wrong, I think that those stories sometimes are noticed more because of how they impact people, right? So I know that there was, um, I'm not going to call anybody out, but a national newspaper had a story that linked the um, HPV vaccine to all of these young women who were getting sick and dying. And um. they kind of essentially were looking at like cause and effect, but that's not necessarily the job of journalism, right? And so people who read that paper read that thinking oh my gosh this vaccine could kill my daughter when that wasn't the case at all mm -hmm. and things like that i know that's such a gruesome story but things like that i think really stick but at the same time if you look at what is happening um across the border with kind of this whole fake news and alternative fact era right and the media being the enemy of the press we do have politicians here who are trying to build themselves off of that kind of yeah politics and rhetoric so i don't know if people remember this but um at Queen's Park, Lisa McLeod, who's the Nepean MPP for this actual, or can I say for this area? Yeah. yeah. Okay, she's the, she's the MPP for this area. Um, she called something fake news. Oh. And yeah, but showing how our country, again, isn't perfect, but can be different. People actually got so upset that she apologized for it, which is very different, right? Like Donald Trump is not apologizing for calling yeah. fake news. But I think that was interesting because it showed people here are willing to say that. And if she's one person who was comfortable saying that in a place like Toronto, then there are definitely people across this country who are comfortable saying it, but we're not hearing from them because probably their community papers are closed. Okay. That would be my thought. Now, that yeah. being said, I don't know if I can pinpoint one area, but I think a lot of people look at Donald Trump, but I would actually say that the fall of community papers is probably what happened first. And you saw a similar thing in the American election, right? The media is very centralized to D.C., L.A., New York City, which is very liberal, but also a bit of a bubble. And meanwhile, all of these um, bureaus, especially in places like the Rust Belt, were closing and those people weren't heard from, right? And I think that's when the fake news actually started because people felt like there wasn't anybody to report on them anymore. And the people who were, were reporting like without going to the places or were, were reporting without knowledge of how those places So work. they feel like, you know, left out or forgotten and that, you know, because they're not big city, they're not big jobs, mm -hmm. you know, they're more of the... I guess you you hear it in the media called like middle class or you know middle yeah, class America. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, that the everyone's forgotten about them, and then they want to mm. use their voice for something. I was I was listening to a podcast, and they were saying that oh, it, um, it's a guy running in the in for twenty twenty. Um, oh. What's his name? Andrew Yang. Okay. Um, but he He's says like one of the billions of Democrats who's running. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. And his, his platform is. Um, his big platform is uh, universal basic income. Okay. But anyways, he was talking about going to Iowa. And he goes to mm -hmm. Iowa because he's talking to a big trucking population there. And I guess um, what a lot of the truckers don't know is um, they're really planning on the next five years that most transportation is going to be automated. And it's going to be like um, AI running mm -hmm. the things across across the country so they're going to be out of jobs and no one's really thinking about that but then he brought up that like you know there's iowa uh there was ohio michigan pennsylvania and there was another state and it was all these swing states that are being going to be most affected by these ai and nobody's talking about it so all these people are losing jobs but they're mm -hmm. worried about what's going on um in new york or la like you said like the big cities so yeah like all these people are going through these you know, 
pretty life-changing moments where they're going to have to decide mm-hmm. what they're going to do for the rest of their life, if anything. And no one's talking about it. It's all focused on, you know, things that matter to some, but not to the entire country. And it's not a representation of what's going on. I totally agree with you. I also think that sometimes, like, I my parents love you parents if you listen they they love cnn um they watch it all the time and i was staying with them when i first came back for this job before i got my apartment and i used to be big into cnn too i'm still big into politics but i didn't really watch it when i was living in toronto for my other job and cnn will put together a panelist of five people to analyze a tweet that donald trump put out <laughs> and maybe he misspelled something or maybe he said kofefe or maybe he said something yeah. ridiculously inappropriate whatever it is but five people will spend like half an hour talking about it and what it means for the country, right? And those are journalists who could and should be able to report on other things, right? That is, it's it's tough because I can understand why people do that, right? They want to survive. They want the views that gets yeah. people watching. But it is, that's not what I think journalism should be. Mm-hmm. And it's stuff like that, like that's really tough, right? And people get frustrated, right? Again, all those people. And I think people on both sides now are really tired of... I think watching media kind of take hold and especially letting, I think, somebody else dictate the media cycle in that way. Yeah, it really becomes a, like corporatism. Like it's mm-hmm. and it's not that corporations are, you know, some are partisan, some are some are not, you know, some lean different ways. But what it is, is instead of journalism being about the truth or being mm-hmm. about facts, it's about money. So yeah. it's who's getting the most clicks, who's getting the mm-hmm. most views. And that's why you start getting things that creep into. Uh, one of the big things that bothers me about it is on Facebook now you see, and that's, you know, Twitter and Facebook are such huge drivers of what they are. Of the news oh, now. Yeah. And it'll give you like a two minute read on. So you'll see an article and it'll be like, it's a two minute read. I'm like, why is this entire story about like, I don't know, something significant only mm-hmm. going to be two minutes. How are you supposed to get all the facts? Because people don't want to read it. So you have to cater to people who don't even really care. Exactly. Or you'll get things that are so, you know, maybe a story breaks and it's behind a paywall. And then oh, yeah. a bunch of opinion pieces come out. And maybe you're not subscribing for whatever reason, right? No one has to. Um, and you don't know what to think. Or maybe you're watching CPAC, the House of Commons. I'm probably one of like very few who does that. I love you, CPAC. Um, (laughs) But maybe you're watching that, right? And you see one side saying one thing and they have numbers. And then you see another side saying another thing and they have numbers. And I think things can seem so inaccessible. And again, right? Like you're trying to figure out what that truth is. Mm -hmm. But at that point, is it easier to just go for the truth that best serves what you believe? Yeah. Right? And and that's not helpful either. And so I think you definitely do see that again with... um, with journalism, I think you see it a lot with opinion pieces because I think sometimes um, it's hard to be fully media literate and maybe understand that something's an opinion piece. Yeah, I was um, just going to say that. Right? Like, you may not know that, like, you know, if Margaret Wente is writing something, she's probably not writing it journalistically. She's writing it to share mm-hmm. her opinion. Um, and then other reporters on the side, too, right? Like, Catherine Porter used to be a Toronto Star columnist before she went over to the New York Times. Like, she would have... Those people were writing with a specific opinion. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know that or if they just kind of match your ideology, you may take it as fact, right? That's also when the rebel first started, people, I think, were taking it as, oh, my goodness, these things are happening. That's how it launched that way, right? And it would be like all sorts of people who do consume media but maybe weren't used to that type of media. Mm -hmm. The rebel, that's Ezra. That is, yeah. Not the radio station (laughs) in town here. Um, No, it's it's so true. I I remember watching a documentary on... it was put together 
funny enough by CNN, but it was um it was on decades. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. There's the there's sixties, the seventies, the eighties. Yeah. Love them. But there was the one in the eighty or no nine. This one was in the nineties, and they were talking about. Um, the introduction of 24-hour news and how you're going to fill the cycle. And they started bringing on commentary. So like you said, you had mm-hmm. the five people discussing one tweet. Exactly. And you're right. Like people, there's there's so much to know. Mm-hmm. Because not only do we have, you know, just in this paper in front of yeah. us, we're going to talk about these big Canadian issues. Yeah. There's everything always going on in the States, which dominates the news cycle. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, Venezuela. There's Yemen. There's ISIS in the Middle East. Yeah. There's, there's all that. And, you know... This is just the big stories. This is the stuff that, like, you know, exactly. apparently there's a Muslim genocide in China that I don't really know much about, but yeah. I've heard the ringing, you know? Mm-hmm. it's There's so much of these big stories to know, and the news cycle is just so quick, 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 quick. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, you working for, you know, an in, like a Aboriginal Indigenous yep. People station. Yeah. Um, there was the thing uh, with the protest and the pipeline. Yep. The Wet'suwet'en Nation. That's still going on, I bet. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It is. And I haven't heard anything in the yeah. news since day one. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, the 14 people were in court, I think, last month, and they're going to be in court again soon. Yeah, yeah, so it's like constantly changing, and every day we're like, okay, what's next? Da, da, da. And it's like, how are we supposed to really know what's going on? And then things fall through the cracks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And then you have, yeah, commentary. You have opinions. You have mm-hmm. all these things that aren't necessarily news exactly it's it's just people with maybe a profile or mm-hmm. or talking about something and people are just sharing that they're like yeah see like lefty snowflakes or or yeah alt-right mm-hmm. racist bigots and you're mm-hmm. like like what is going on and then you look at the source and it's like helpless canada freedom dot slash org yeah and people and do you're that, like right? what are you like, doing yeah i read somewhere that was like uh people over 60 share the most fake news on on facebook and oh, Twitter. interesting <laughs> it's very it's funny because um the uh co-host that i do the show with um he likes facebook and i hate facebook yeah, and hate so facebook we'll often too. um talk about that we'll all be very kind of sour about facebook and i really like twitter and i know that twitter is necessarily not much better but what i do like about it is that you could follow a specific journalist and Mm -hmm. kind of hear from them what's happening while they're there right Mm -hmm. um so if you curate who you follow it might be a little easier to get away from the fake news versus like those are very dangerous no that that's for sure true and like that's why like i think twitter is a double-edged sword 100 percent. but i think sometimes like people on facebook um the algorithm i think is a big problem right now Mm -hmm. so if you engage with like so say i'm a big hate reader um, so like there are columnists that I don't like or news sources that I won't like, but I'll read them anyway. Just to, like I actually did an entire content analysis on a columnist I really didn't like for a journalism class. Um, and so if I engage with that on Facebook, like my um, feed will show more of that. Right. Yeah. But mm-hmm. maybe because I studied media and like I know that that isn't a source I trust, I won't engage with it again or I'll just hate read it again because why yeah. not? <laughs> but a lot of like, you know, the people who are over 60 or 65 they're used to their community newspaper yeah. and like they open that up and that's everything they need so mm-hmm. they don't understand the the difference of you know I, I don't want to say they don't understand but it's they just again yeah like you said that they accept it as fact because they're reading it on the internet no matter what like there's like facebook groups like united conservatives for canada and they just post these random memes with mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. about trudeau or about whoever and you're like that's not true but you look down and it has like over yep. two million shares and you're like what are you what well and a lot of those <laughs> sites too right they do look like they look very journalistic right mm-hmm. so if you're looking mm-hmm. for a certain thing or you're upset about an issue 
it does validate what you're thinking. And if you're not familiar with it or if you don't trust whatever media, you could easily think that that is um, credible. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk about was you mentioned things dropping through the cracks. And definitely as journalists, that happens. We don't get mm-hmm. things right. I know that there are so many times where I'm on air and I'm like, I hope I didn't just do something ridiculous. I don't know um, if it's the fact. Like, I mean, I'm sure facts, they mm-hmm. change. Like, as you, mm-hmm. we were talking about off air before, like things evolve. The yeah. story changes. New information comes to mm-hmm. light. Um, but like stories that matter, they just, you know, there's so far like few journalists who actually you know you have to be up on the next story because that's going to get the next click and well and that's what i wanted to say so number one like i love working in journalism and there are so many journalists just in this country alone that i truly admire and i read all the time but the problem is that we're all under such immense pressure like layoffs are happening all the time um a lot of journalists are underpaid and they're understaffed right and you have people who i think just if you're facing that kind of pressure and maybe you're, you know, you're a young person and you're trying to make it in this industry, mm-hmm. right? Like you have one contract and you know that that might be your one chance. Or maybe you're towards the end of your career and you're afraid of being pushed out, like whatever it is. Um, I think it's the pressures of that. Like mm-hmm. when you're just one person trying to do that. Like I know people who work two or three jobs in this industry, right? If you're working on the clock all the time and you're not taking care of yourself properly those things will just slip naturally and that's nothing against the work ethic of anybody right that's kind of for sure how it's set up and i think the problem is that it's like twofold right so there are things about the industry that really kind of do make it like there's this new cycle and you're trying to jump on and you want people to listen to you right like i work for a newer station like that's certainly something that i always think about like how can we make sure that people are tuning in or you know you're getting the likes or whatever you're bringing on that personality who you know will like people cause the controversy or whatever right yep yep But then at the same time, I think we forget that this is a really needed industry. Um, And some of the stories that you have that we're going to talk about, right? Like we know about those because of journalism, but we're not funding it properly. And we're not bearing in mind all of the great journalists that maybe we've lost or we could lose if these layoffs continue to happen. And so I think it's a, it's this weird kind of spot, right? And then I know for myself, sometimes as a journalist, I take for granted what I learned in journalism school. And I don't remember that other people spend their time learning other things Mm -hmm. right so they might not necessarily know and i think all of those interests are competing with each other in this industry and then the stories start coming out right yeah do you think they're you know looking to the future that there might be independent journalism and what i mean by that is kind of like what you see um some scholars doing some Mm -hmm. people who are you know professors or they, they they run their own enterprises but like Basically, you're a self-funded, uh, and I guess you can look at that as like freelance in a way, but yeah, more like, sure. um, I was listening to a podcast with a guy by the name of Tim Poole, Tim Peel or something, and he's on his own and he's freelance and he does like YouTube and he's on Twitter a lot and he's just kind of like his own thing, his own journalist mm-hmm. and I- like inter- enterprise and he's just going on it on his own. I've certainly heard about a lot of that. Like, to the YouTube part, I can't speak to that. But I do have a lot of friends who actually do watch YouTubers for news. And I think that that's something that I need to start being more aware of. Mm -hmm. Because clearly people are... There's something that they're getting there. Yeah. Um, But the enterprise part, 100%. um, I think there's a Hamilton City Hall reporter who's probably one of the only reporters there, right? Like, kind of... It can seem very dry to some people, I think, to go to City Hall and figure out the municipality. But those are the things that impact your day-to-day, right? And he's doing that all on his own. And it's his own kind of business. And I think he does get, like, people who pay because they want to read his work. Because, again, right, like, mm-hmm. if he doesn't go, people won't know what's happening at Hamilton City Hall. 
Um, another good example of that, and I know that not everybody loves this specific podcast, but I think Canada Land is a great example of that. I don't know if you're familiar with Jesse Brown's work. Yeah, I, I know it from Twitter, but mm -hmm. I never listened to the podcast. Yeah, so that's a great example of Enterprise, right? It was one podcast that then turned into a group of them. Um, they've done a lot of investigative work as well. Mm. So I think that's one that it's a really good example. And that's um, he has Patreon subscribers. And through that, he's able yeah. to pay his um, freelance journalists. And he does have a team of journalists that work under him. So that's a really good example. Um, one of the freelance projects that I work for, it's called Carspace. And that's something that was created by our founder, Kamal Minas, and she's able to pay us. And she has, so part of it is, I think it's going to eventually become an incubator for women running businesses. But another part is this magazine. Okay. And, you know, it's really great to be paid as a journalist. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. And especially, mm -hmm. you know, a young journalist trying yeah. to break in your career. Yeah. I mean, like media anywhere, you're... It's a struggle to get your foot in the door and mm -hmm. you have to give off a lot for, 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 for free. Yeah, and or for exposure, right? Yeah. Um, I saw this very funny tweet the other day where it was like, after years of being paid for exposure, a like insert here, like writer, journalist, author dies of exposure. And I was like, <laughs> I mean, it's true. you're though. not wrong, yeah. right? And I think that's really hard too. I had somebody actually on LinkedIn reach out to me and he was like, hey, we have this blog and we would love for you to write for us. What a great opportunity for you. And it's funny because maybe had I been a student or had I been in my other job and I was looking to transition out, maybe I would have said yes. But I was like, buddy, I get paid to write. I get paid to do media. Yeah. No, thanks. Yeah. Um, and when I told him that, he said, well, maybe you could set up a pay structure for us. And again, I was like, no, thank you. Like, you need to figure this out on your own. Um, it's not for me to set up a pay structure for you. Yeah. And also, like, I didn't really feel comfortable blogging for that, right? Because that kind of gets into that conflict of interest thing. Mm. But I just found it so interesting that I guess he saw in my LinkedIn journalist and thought, well, she can... Just do this for free. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have to shop your work around and get people to read. And exactly. Yeah, I I find Twitter is almost as big as any other news website source. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah. Show mm -hmm. right. Like Twitter's the place to be for all journalism. Uh, not all, but like most mm -hmm. journalism, right? Like I check that's Twitter where every morning. Break. Yep. No, I and I also find it really helpful because. A lot of so again, like for the indigenous issues that we cover, there will be a lot of people on the ground, right? And it's really helpful to kind of figure out what's important to people or a lot of activists or leaders will tweet about things that maybe aren't making it to the mainstream um, mainstream yeah, media. And maybe exactly. I can find a press release about it or I can find a picture or a video and from there kind of see if this is a story that we need to cover. So I think it is a great launch point. Um, but again, like you, you were mentioning, Twitter is a double-edged sword for sure. Yeah. And when we kind of talked about <clears throat> sometimes jumping on things, that's where you see it happening the most, right? A story breaks and immediately the hot takes are there. Yeah. And then a day later, it's, oh, the story's still unfolding, right? Um, but I think there are a lot of things that can be help for, helpful for. Like you mentioned off-air, I live tweet the House of Commons. That I find, for me at least, is helpful and I hope it is helpful to some people. I do read it and I find it interesting because I'm not, <laughs> but I'm not, um, I mean, I'm... I know the basics on politics. Mm -hmm. Like, I know the certain things. Mm -hmm. But there's always certain things you you should know. And exactly. I find, like, that type of stuff is helpful. Like, when mm -hmm. they're going back and forth and I'm, like, mm -hmm. trying to, like, f figure out, like, okay, mm -hmm. where's the facts? Now, in my personal opinion, those, th like, the the house of commons and it's just mm -hmm. arguing and shouting i don't know how much actually gets done yeah but... you know it's funny you say that because i've been trying to convince people to take more of an interest in it and one of my roots was like i was kind of going off of that it's really petty and i was like if you like keeping up with the kardashians or 
whoever those housewives yeah, are. Yeah, they're shady. <laughs> they're chirping. Yeah. Because the House of Commons, like, they say some terrible things to each other. Like, and I think especially because it's an election year. But, like, they go for it and they make it personal and they make it mean. Yeah. And if you like reality TV, you would probably enjoy this, right? Now, that being said, it doesn't make it perfect. Like, you're still trying to distill the issues and figure yeah. it out. But it is... What I like about House of Commons right now is that I think as a journalist um, who will be covering this election season when the writ does drop later this year, um, it's a really, I'm starting to see different parties figure out their sound bites for campaigns, right? What is their tagline going to be? What is the one thing they're going to say to attack the prime minister? Or what is the prime minister going to say about this party? Or what are what's maybe the wedge issue going to be? Like, mm-hmm. that's a really good place to watch it and start to figure out all of those things. That doesn't make it for everybody. But to your point, like, yeah. I do wish, like, people who do watch, like, one of the Kardashian girls or whatever it is, like, I think you would probably like House of Commons. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you say that about the the politics, though, because I, I feel like we're going to get into a lot of what happened in 2016, where it's just a mm-hmm. lot of name calling. Yeah. A lot of, mm-hmm. um, quote unquote, shade being thrown. Yeah. Um, it's not like... To be honest, like I don't even know what the conservatives are running on, and it's very similar to what Doug Ford ran on. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't really know what you're running on. You're basically what I take of it, and I'm not mm-hmm. someone like you who's like covering it day to day. Is mm-hmm. they're just trying to undo everything the liberals are doing. Like I don't know what their platform is. I don't yeah. know what their their main goals or issues. It's basically like this. No, 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 vote for us because this guy has funny hair. Well, and unless I'm wrong, most of them won't have a party platform out right now because it's so early. Yeah, okay. Um, I do think, though, Jason Kenney with the United Conservative Party actually just released a platform. So he's, like, way ahead. But he also knows that he has some work to do, right, to get people See, to kind of I didn't care. Even but know he's, he wasn't but he's, in um, the... Sorry, no, he's uh, provincial. Yeah. Okay, I was going to say, sorry. I didn't even know um, he's not but so, a conservative so you're good. anymore. <laughs> um, you're good. <laughs> well, there's, no, but um, yeah, but, like, even there's factions like that, right? Bernier. Like, he's just totally... Yeah, Bernier. Bernier is a good example. And so this is where I think, to your point about the conservatives, um, they're at a crossroads right now, right? So they can either be center and kind of show that if you want... Like, if you don't like Justin Trudeau, if you're unhappy with what's been happening, we're your center party, you can rely on us. Like, we had a guy who was in for 10 years, blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. But... They do have this other guy. And Maxime Bernier was fairly popular, right? Everybody thought he was going to be the leader. Like, Mm -hmm. I remember being... I was actually at a journalism conference in BC, and I remember I was like, who even is Andrew Scheer? Um, And I was with all these journalists who were, like, scrambling to get to know him. So they're going to have to figure out, are they going to be that center party, or are they going to start to lean in an alt-right manner like Maxime Bernier has, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think, to your point, that's what you're seeing some of the MPs testing out. There are some MPs. Like, I don't think anybody has said anything in the House of Commons that I would say, like, okay, that's, like, alt-right. But I think people are starting to kind of figure out the messaging, right? There's a lot of, like, um, they really love the line, Justin Trudeau obviously can't balance a budget because he's never had to balance a household budget. Like, they love that line. Yeah. Um, if you did a drinking game for that, like, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> um, they really like that line. But then you also see people who are talking about open borders and immigration. And that, to me, like, again, it's not, like, outwardly alt-right but that's definitely something that i think we're going to see a lot of from maxime bernier yeah and so you're seeing them testing the waters and i think a big part of what our election in our country will look like will depend on the choice that the conservative party makes and i based on what i'm seeing right now i can't tell you what it is and that now and this was all before snc lavalin right so that's also going to change the rhetoric as well so it'll be very interesting to see what happens tomorrow when the house is sitting again yeah so that's all back tomorrow Mm mm-hmm um, and, you know, news broke today, so we're recording this on Monday the 18th. Yes. 
um, Gerald Butts, and I don't know too much about him, but I mm-hmm. tried to get some mm-hmm. stuff. He was a political advisor and a longtime friend of yeah, Trudeau. Yeah, yeah. And he resigned today. Yeah, so Gerald Butts is, was one of the top guys for Trudeau. It was him, Katie Telford, and then Kate Purchase is his is the comms director. So the fact that he did is a big deal. And I think a lot of people, when the SNC-Lavalin story first came out, I don't think, and myself included, necessarily realized how deep a story like this would have to run, right? Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I agree with you. Like, it was just like, oh, another, like, India mm-hmm. scandal type of blah blah blah. It's just it'll just go away. Yeah. But then it yeah then uh, Jody Race Raybound um, mm-hmm. re- resigns and yeah. So I think the fact that Gerald Butts resigning means that the story is definitely far from over. Mm-hmm. Um, and it to me it signals that the PMO, despite saying otherwise last week that they weren't involved, is telling us that they were probably a lot more involved than they would like to get on. That would be my read of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Gerald Butts has been with Trudeau since the beginning. He is one of his top advisors. Um, a lot of people would say that he is also one of the kind of decision makers behind the scenes. Um, on the side of the conservatives who, again, like love to take a shot at Justin Trudeau, they would often say that Gerald Butts is the one making the actual decisions. So the fact that he resigned is like that, I think, is really something worth noting. And then for Trudeau and for the election, that's also going to change what they're going to be doing now. Right. Like PMO scrambling. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot that they have to figure out what's going to happen. Um that being said, um, PMO, I think, sometimes will make decisions that have, like, impacts without kind of realizing it. So definitely he's a loss for Trudeau. But I think that this is a time for people to regroup, right? It's mm-hmm. it's February now. The election's not going to be until October. They have to figure it out. But in regards to this scandal, like, that's definitely well, a big thing. it doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon. No. And actually, what <sighs> I've been saying to my friends and family is that I think the Liberals now have to decide if they want Justin Trudeau to represent them going forward. Really? You think it's that serious? Personally, I do. Um, I think that this scandal impacts so many different parts of our country. Mm. Um, I think that although a lot of it is certainly about Jody Wilson-Raybould, it also extends far beyond her because this is a story, right? If, If he did ask her to intervene, he asked her to engage in criminal behavior. And that would be the story of somebody who thinks that they are above certain laws, right? So everything that the conservatives and the NDPs have been saying about him kind of being like the rich boy who thinks he can do everything would be true mm-hmm. if that's the case. And I mean, that's a very simplistic way to look at it, mm-hmm. but that would kind of be what it is. Um, and this is also, right, this is a story of corruption for the Indigenous um, voters. The Indigenous voters were one of the biggest parts of why Justin Trudeau even got in. Mm. For them, this would mean that reconciliation was never a priority, right? For the people who thought that he cared about feminism and a gender-balanced cabinet, they're going to look at that and say, well, Jody Wilson-Raybould was a token, right? What she did, according to the Globe and Mail report, is that she did her job. And what happened, right? When she tried to do a job, she was essentially told, according to this report, like, no, 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 you don't do that. Mm-hmm. And for the people who were watching, right, the first Indigenous cabinet minister, the first Indigenous attorney general of Canada, like, what did that mean? And that's going to anger and upset a lot mm-hmm. of people. What's like, I don't want to say but, like, what's the feeling around it right now? Because I know mm-hmm. um, when the news first broke and she mm-hmm. resigned that, you know, a lot of um, First Nation leaders were yep. coming to the press and making comments on it. Mm-hmm. Her dad yep. uh, came out. They did. So um, what, what's like the feeling around her resignation and the prime minister right now? Because I know with mm-hmm. the pipeline and everything, too, and he was going on. Um, yep. The the press tours there. Yes. Um, 
the speak. I can't remember the what town halls. Town yeah, halls. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Um, people were getting up and interrupting mm-hmm. and yelling. So what? Like you said, that they were such a big part of why he got in. Exactly. Um, and all I've heard for the past three years is reconciliation and almost everything mm-hmm. that's been done. So, as a journalist, I'm going to say that I think with a lot of the sources I've had the chance to speak with, there's a difference between talking about reconciliation and taking steps. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people from who I've spoken with feel that apologies are fine and well, but it's an easy way to signal that this is something that you care about, right? But, you know, one of the issues you have is Cat Lake, right? Yeah. That's like, there are issues that are happening across this country that I think people feel like are not being prioritized. Um, in regards to SNC-Lavalin and Jody Wilson-Raybould specifically, um, if you look at what's been happening with the media and kind of the way it looks like the Liberal Party is kind of taking different sides on all of this, which is natural, but I think some people, like, the sides are concerning, right? So on the one hand, you have somebody like Jane Philpott, who is now the Treasury Board President, but she used to be the Indigenous Services Minister, and she would have worked quite closely with Jody Wilson-Raybould. She thanked her and said how much she learned from her. That is, I think, quite the deal coming from somebody who is still part of the Liberal Cabinet and is you know, very, she's considered one of the stronger cabinet ministers. Okay. But then you also have this report from Global News where a bunch of unnamed liberal sources were like, well, she's difficult to work with. And a lot of people viewed that as an attack, right? What does difficult to work with mean? Like, did you have any examples to actually back up how she was difficult to work with? And also, would she be difficult to work with because she had one of the most high stress jobs in the cabinet, right? People are wondering what that was supposed to signal and was that an attack mm-hmm. and then last week um anthony housefather who is one of the backbench mps he went on ctv and basically said well jody wilson raybould was demoted um because she doesn't speak french and people thought again you're bringing on this person to attack her and that doesn't seem to make sense right the other thing about that specifically is that um not everybody does speak French and not everybody from every indigenous area may, may be able to, right? Just yeah. because of the history of our country. Mm-hmm. So, and again, that's a, that's a nuanced thing. I think it's a bit of a, when you say things like that, I think people take that as a bit of a dog whistle. I don't know if people know what that term means. Why don't you explain it? So a dog whistle would be making a term that is racially loaded, but not every person would get, but that group that you're aiming it at would. Mm. So, and again, I'm just speaking based on what I've heard some people say. Um, There was actually a Globe and Mail article about a Supreme Court, um, an Indigenous man who could have been a Supreme Court justice, but couldn't because he spoke French. And he was saying that just because of where he was from and how he grew up, like, that wouldn't have never happened. Like, he was like, I went to a residential school and weren't teaching me French. Um, And so something like that I also thought was very interesting because, again, if you're as dedicated to reconciliation as you said you were, you should probably, one, be aware of that, and two, you wouldn't make that comment, which then I think to all of the voters who prioritize this as an issue would be questioning, do you really care? Yeah. It's, it's heavy stuff. Yeah, it, it is heavy and stuff. And again, like you just see the headlines. I don't think people understand how deep-rooted this goes into so many I think different so. areas. And I think, too, right, all of this is happening in an election year that could be very unstable, right? One of our major parties is going to be running in the by-election next week and if he doesn't get a seat that's, that's also right. going to change things right and so for people who are wondering who they're going to vote for justin trudeau a lot of people would say has done people no favors right this is i think to people who are really into politics and very passionate about voting and are concerned about not only our country but our world right because after we have our election other countries are going to have elections and we're going to be looking at 
what our world will be like moving forward, right? Angela Merkel will not be chancellor for much longer. She's already said she's resigning. Yeah. There's going to be the American election. Um, Theresa May has already said that she won't run again in Brexit. But yeah. you have all of these world powers and we will be the first election. And what will our country look like? And will we be strong enough to interact with all these other people? And so I think I definitely don't ever want to catastrophize anything. But I think that this is an issue that, like you said, number one, goes, it's very deep. Um, it starts with Jody Wilson-Raybould, but I don't think it ends with her. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that her part of the story shouldn't be told either. Yeah. Do you think, because I know she um, got counsel from a former Supreme yes, Court. Thomas Cromwell. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> um, you sound excited about that. And I heard, I've never heard of the guy before today or uh, the, uh, the other day. Yeah. Well, so I think when she did that, she was making a real statement, right? So part of the problem was I was there for... Um, I was there for a few of the House of Commons sessions, obviously. Um, and it's a bizarre thing because MPs started asking what happened to her and she can't talk about it when she's in the House. So the only thing that she could talk about was Veterans Affairs. Okay. So Justin Trudeau would be answering and she wouldn't be able to answer. Either she wasn't there or if she was there, she couldn't answer. So we only heard from her and people kind of phrased it as like like a proof of life almost thing. Like we only heard from her um, when somebody asked a question specifically about veterans issues. And she commented on that. But there was a clear elephant in the room, right? So by resigning, she's now giving herself the chance to figure out what she can say and how she can say it. Mm -hmm. Because the other thing is that the Commons Justice Committee did vote to investigate the case, but they're not using her as a witness. Yeah, okay. That that was a whole other thing. That, that was, was a whole other on. thing. So I think for her, right, if she that could have been a chance for her to speak. And she as she put in her own statement when she was first shuffled to Veterans Affairs Truth to Power. That was an opportunity taken away from her. So now she's figuring out how she can do that. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm trying to wrap my head around it. Cause yeah. That, that, that was a whole other thing is um, when they voted to investigate that, mm -hmm. I guess that she, yeah, she wasn't a witness. I guess Trudeau wasn't a witness either or something. There and... were three people. I'm not sure if he was one, but I know for sure she was like one that they vetoed. Which is. Why would you not want to talk to her about her side? Well, and again, right, I think for a lot of people who think that he's done this, he did ask her to intervene, it doesn't look good. Like, if you were confident, right, that you didn't do this, you would have no problem having her speak. Yeah. But some people are kind of saying, if you did do this, maybe, maybe, now, right, you would want to. And it does seem to a lot of people, too, right, like the story has kind of been forever changing with the prime minister. Mm -hmm. It went from like a vehement denial to like, we did talk about it, right? There was that one line that a lot of people jumped on where he said, we did talk about it, but if she felt pressured, it was on her to say so, right? So the story's already beginning to kind of change from where it was when the Globe and Mail reporting first broke. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I didn't scare people no. with any of that. No, I think this is stuff that people should know mm -hmm. uh, for the fact that not it's not just this kind of scandal with a business and the prime minister or mm -hmm. something it's something that i think is really going to shape the next whatever nine months until the election oh yeah um like this isn't going to go away this impacts so many people right the other thing too is that a lot of government officials were told, right, that they got to help work on reconciliation, right? So think about all of the different peoples who make up government and thought that they were part of something. They've now spent four years wondering if maybe they were just given busy work to do, right? Like maybe mm -hmm. reconciliation didn't matter. Um, so that's a ton of the voting blocks, right? And then for those people who don't understand reconciliation and why it's important in this country, all they've heard for four years is kind of reconciliation, reconciliation, reconciliation without understanding what it is and why it matters. And those people are frustrated and tired, right? And they're going to be frustrated and tired when they hear about it in the town halls and in the yeah. debates. Yeah, oh, especially, you know, 
people who are from small towns and are a pretty conservative base who this probably was never an issue beforehand. So again, they've all this just been hearing this and then it's going to go away or be challenged and how much are they really going to give into it, um, which is super unfortunate. Um, I think it's important that we touch on too as we're talking about this. You know, for a lot of people, I don't think they know truly what reconciliation means. I think to mm-hmm. a lot of people, it's, yeah. it's we're sorry. Yeah. I, is that completely it or does it run... Is it a little more complicated? Or? So to me, I would say that that's not completely it. Okay. I think that if you are engaging with reconciliation, it's not an apology. It's kind of how you act, right? So maybe if you're like, this is going to sound so silly, but like if you see a pair of moccasins you think are nice, like why don't you go to an indigenous owner? Okay. Or if you want to like, why not read a book, right? Like why not read? There's so many books by so many indigenous authors where you could learn a little bit more about it. Mm-hmm. Or right, things like this get really controversial, but like maybe you're an engineering student, but why not take a course about Indigenous studies, right? I think it's more about engaging and kind of understanding where you lie in all of this, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm non-Indigenous. I'm also a non-Indigenous journalist. So I, and I'm not saying I get it right all the time, but I always try to think about the fact that like I have this job and I work for the station and how am I engaging with my sources? Am I going into a community? Am I taking too much without giving? But also I'm not an activist. It's important that I know that I'm not an advocate for the community in this role. I'm a journalist, right? So it's always about figuring that out. But Mm -hmm. I do think people get very defensive when we talk about reconciliation. I know a lot of people talk about concepts of white guilt or what have you. Um, But I think people also look at it as very historic. It's very easy to say these things happened so long ago. Well, the last residential school actually closed in 1996. Yeah. Right? I talked Um, about that in a previous episode because I only found that out mm -hmm. not that long ago. Mm -hmm. And that like blew my mind. I was like, what? (laughs) That's the other part of reconciliation, right? Um, I grew up outside of Ottawa in Manitick. I went to a school in Manitick. I really liked my school, but it was a very white school. And I took human (laughs) rights in journalism together. And I remember taking human rights courses and seeing so many different types of students that I just never would have seen at a white Catholic school. And I think I was kind of the last generation of those students who really didn't learn about Indigenous issues, or if they did, it was very sanitized. And that's part of reconciliation too, right? Like, and people are realizing, I think especially governments, like it's hard to kind of say you need to be a part of reconciliation if people don't even know the history. Yeah. And like you said, right? Like, and it's not just um, residential schools. It's the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. It's the water boil advisories. It's the 60s scoop. And it's the fact that all of these things continue to impact people today and Mm -hmm. i think that's another thing that we also don't think about we we know through research that um something like the holocaust right did impact the children of survivors and so the same thing would be happening with people here right whose parents survived residential schools or whose parents were maybe put in the foster care system with the 60s Mm -hmm. all of these things are very ongoing but i think to be a part of reconciliation means you have to be very reflective about that and understand where you or maybe your ancestors stood in that and i think people get defensive and scared when they kind of think about what that means but that doesn't mean that there isn't a way right like a big part of reconciliation is learning and meeting new people and learning about the different businesses that are run by indigenous mm-hmm. peoples or books and things like that okay i hope that wasn't too complicated no no no, for no. um it's interesting because um i think i mentioned to you like i have four um inuit adopt so three adopted siblings and a, and a foster mm-hmm. so i am from a small town mm-hmm. um and I, I didn't learn anything about residential schools, indigenous. Mm-hmm. The only things I learned about was like in grade seven Canadian history. And it was like um, the different 
things that made up like Ontario. So there was like uh, like the Mohawk, and there was like a, just like the sections and like the mm-hmm. War of eighteen twelve and mm-hmm. how that yeah. was all a thing. Of I was like, that's all I learned. Yeah. So as I started like started integrating these children mm-hmm. from different things, and then um, the big kind of aha moment where I truly realized is um, my brother's. Um, so two of them are half brothers and the same mom. Mm-hmm. She's been missing for two years. Oh wow! Um, and no one has seen her. Um, I presumed, you know, whatever mm-hmm. happened, but um, two years and no answers. You know, she has, I mean, like eleven, twelve kids. You know, some are uh, growing up to be, you know, I think nineteen, twenty now, and they're starting. You know, I see them on social media talking about it. My brother just did a speech on it for his school. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, he's 10. Oh, my god. But it's just like that was kind of like the. It's it's sad to say, but a lot of people need that personal. Feeling of or mm-hmm. it's kind of like, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to get cancer. But oh, no, now I'm actually directly affected by cancer. Yeah, this is what it actually feels like. Mm-hmm. You, you need that. And it's hard for people, but um then I started learning about it, and that's when I learned, like, 1996 was the last residential school, and I'm like, so now every time I have an opportunity, especially to talk to an elder, I'm, mm-hmm. like, very interested in hearing their their story and their perspective. Um, and it's not out of, like, a really anything. just, like, I'm interested in hearing that side of things because you almost never do, or like, I never had, I ever. think that's, like, a great thing that we can do. Like, I remember when I was in Toronto, there was this restaurant called the Pow Wow Cafe, and it served different types of indigenous foods. And I never tried any before. And a friend and I thought, like, why not go, right? Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes people, like, you can take one step and let it snowball from there. Like, my mom, she's a retired school teacher. And one of the things that she started doing was she taught a podcast, um, one of my favorite podcasts by Connie Walker called Missing and Murdered. Um, and it's all about, she basically takes one story of, like, one indigenous woman or girl who went missing that, again, her story just wasn't out there. And she tries to figure out what happened to them. Mm. And my mom was kind of in that phase, right? When schools are trying to start teaching Indigenous issues, but they're not quite sure how. And my mom was having a hard time with some of the resources that had been given to her. I mentioned the podcast to her and she developed an entire curriculum around it, right? Oh, wow. So she found a way that worked from her for her. And then from there, she was able to find other things. So then she started participating in things like Have a Heart Day. And she started kind of like looking to read more books and figure out who some of the authors are and then by the time the station came around like obviously she listens because I'm her daughter and she's a good fan (laughs) but she also listens because it is something that she knows she wants to learn more about but Mm -hmm. she also has that point of entry right and I think the fact that she can do that and she's don't hate me for saying this mom but in her mid-50s right I think that's like a hopeful thing Mm -hmm. but then to your point too right people need personal connections so like the personal connection I think almost for her being her daughter saying you should listen to this but people also need education. So I remember I have a little cousin, she's nine. And I was saying something with her about indigenous rights. And I just was trying to like glaze over it because she was probably seven or eight at the time. Right. So I kind of said something that I would never normally say about an indigenous issue. And then she said, no, 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 that's not right. Like we took their land. And she was like, I know this cause I learned this in school. And I thought that's pretty cool. And mm-hmm. I don't mean like that's like a cure all by any mean, but I like, she's seven years old and she learned something that I did not learn at seven years old. Right. Yeah. She vocalized it in a very simplistic way, but she was like, I know you're wrong and I'm going to tell you you're wrong. Yeah. Cause I know that I've learned this. Yeah, and I think good. if we do more things like that too, right? Like she may not have a personal connection right now. Like her only personal connection I would say would be the fact that I work at the station and she mm-hmm. likes to listen. But the fact that in school now she's given the place where she can learn those things. And I know that they actually had a residential school survivor come in and speak to them. And she's able to kind of 
piece together that this is something that's happened that I think was very different for you and I in school. Yeah. No, I think and something like that would have definitely like brought more to my attention for mm -hmm. sure. Like it's the same thing. Like you don't really understand the world wars until you talk to someone who lived through it. Exactly. Um, again, you need some, there's just, there, there's a lot going on in this world. Like we, we talked about, there's all these news things. Yes. There's everything going on in your personal life. There's, mm -hmm. there's um, family issues, financial issues, the economy, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah, all this stuff. So to actually make reconciliation a priority can I imagine be tough for some people. I think it can be tough, too, if the institutions that are kind of in charge of laying it out don't know how to do so properly. Right? I don't think really a lot of us do. No. And like, all, I think all of us, right? Mm -hmm. All of us play a role in that. I know that um, I, I studied human rights. And so I was lucky because I spent four years, five years learning how to kind of be comfortable being uncomfortable. Right. Which I think is the best way to do any of these things, because then it allows you to meet new people and try new things. Mm -hmm. But I forget sometimes that maybe for my friends and family, it's not the same. So sometimes it can be very easy for me to be like, you should just do this. Or how do you not know this or whatever? Right. And when I do that, I alienate people. Um, and so I always try to be mindful of how can I kind of find a way that's not babying somebody. Yeah. But is also um, teaching them. And like that being said, I've certainly been at some very combative Christmas dinners that I know I've played a part in. Haven't we all these yeah. days? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's tough because like you said, I think the problem is when governments are putting the onus on people without giving them the tools and like you said bearing in mind that somebody has so many things going on that mm -hmm. it's maybe not a priority for them and maybe too they don't know why it should be a priority like they might not know about residential schools they might not know about all of these things that again for me i take for granted that i know but then i forget sometimes that i really only started to know when i was 20 and i'm 24 yeah. right like yeah. how can i with four years of experience suddenly think okay that's it i'm yeah i'm the expert i'm the one who has to yeah. tell everybody about this and mm -hmm. educate them on the subject like mm -hmm that's that's too big an onus on yeah on people who are just learning it themselves even some teachers exactly you know like yeah. teachers are supposed to teach these kids about it and really they're like trying to like read the curriculum book and be like okay yeah this is what ha like and like even like they don't have a deep understanding so that's why i no, love for that sure. you know they had a, a personal person like mm -hmm. connection come in and tell it firsthand mm -hmm. This is what I saw. This is what I experienced. Imagine this because that was me. Exactly. That's what gets people wrapped around. And then, too, you, you hear the story firsthand. It's not coming through a filter of whatever it, you know, whoever's hands filters the story. No, totally. You, you come in from a, a firsthand perspective, which is I think is super important. No, I, I really think so. And I, I really hope that that's something that we can continue. Like, I know I experienced a smudging ceremony for the first time this year when we opened the station. Yeah, yeah, um, I remember that. And I, I remember how accommodating the facilities were to us, right? And I think that was a great example of people learning together because it was really important that the actual station itself be smudged. And that meant that we had to figure out, you know, the fire alarms and everything. But we were able to do that. And I do think, like that is a step towards reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Like everybody who helped make that happen instead of scoffing off or saying like, we can't because of this, right. Or do it outside. Like everybody was invested in the process of making it happen. And it was, it was such a beautiful ceremony. And I think too, what people forget is like, everyone was welcomed in, right? Like I never felt uncomfortable there as a non-Indigenous person. Like it was the way to start off our station. Mm -hmm. um, and similarly, I went to a powwow at Akasasne Reserve and I never felt at all like unwelcome like the first thing they they did was this welcome prayer where dancers went by every single person and you could kind of have a thought and when the person walked by you it was to help kind of make that thought become a reality and i you know i tried different foods and met different people mm -hmm. and i never felt unwelcome but i think sometimes you have to be 
willing to take that step yeah. and really take yourself outside of your comfort zone and also know that like you're not going to know everything. Like yeah. I'm very out of my depth in situations like that, but that's okay because like you said too, right? It's a lot of onus for someone to become a spokesperson and like it's never it's never going to be my position to be the yeah. spokesperson. Like that is something that as a journalist, right? Um I shouldn't because I'm not an advocate, but also journalism has this funny adage where some people became journalists because they want to be like the voice for the voiceless. And this is I feel I know I'm going to get flagged for this, but I hate that. I hate that <laughs> so much. Um that is one of my least favorite things to hear. Um because you're then implying that some people are voiceless and that's not true, right? Like everybody has a voice, but it's all about passing the mic. Yeah. And I think people don't like that because then if you say that to a journalist, it's like, well, I'm just a stenographer. I'm not a storyteller. And it's like, you don't have to be a storyteller. Like somebody has ownership over that story and it's their right to tell it. You're just sharing the platform. Gotcha. And that's okay. Yeah. That makes, okay. That makes sense. It's, Everyone has a voice instead mm-hmm. of you telling the story on behalf of them. Well, you it's like it's like had you done this podcast today and you were like, I'm going to talk about who I think this Caroline O'Neill girl right, is, right. right? But you pass the mic over. Um, and I think, again, like especially for Indigenous peoples, like let the people who have experienced it tell their story. Yeah. Well, and to like, you know, someone like me, uh, I'm interested in learning about everything. Mm-hmm. I try to, but mostly I'm an idiot. And that's okay. <laughs> I try to learn. <laughs> no, and I think people forget, like, it's okay to not know everything, right? It's okay to not be, like, fully aware of how things go. And that's what I wanted to do with this podcast. You know, I, I offer some opinions, but I'm so open to change and just learning from different people from different walks of life with different opinions. And I, I find that so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I never come at it like you versus me because mm-hmm. you think this and I think that. It's like, okay, like, let me, here's why I think this. Yeah. Why do you think this? Okay, interesting. Don't have to agree, and that's fine, no. but that's what I wanted to do with the podcast is have different people on and hear their stories and hear what they do because it's so different than mine. And how many times do you sit there in a bar with somebody having a drink or you're meeting someone for the first time? What do you do? What do you do? Or well, what are you passionate about? What are you passionate? Oh, my God. Yeah, tell me more about that. And, mm-hmm. like, it's just this this blossoming conversation of mm-hmm. me picking your brain on things and talking about everything that's going on and, and sharing common views or having you know, I, I don't really argue with anybody on this. I have a couple times, but I think most people are afraid to argue with oh, it, no. which is fine. Yeah. Right? Like you're, you're broadcasting your opinion now on the internet. Yeah. And we know that's not exactly easy. No, but I think you get more out of it, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm not afraid to put to it out there because I know at heart I'm, I am a good person and I have mm-hmm. done things to prove it. So mm-hmm. when I have a, something that maybe is insensitive or, um, you know, not exactly commonplace to think that. Like, I know I'm not coming at it from a place of hatred or that I don't want someone to have something. Um, and I think that's important for to realize just because someone differs from one of your opinions doesn't mean they're a hateful person or they're, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've done things that I can back it up uh, and show people that I and, that I do care. And I, I have this big thing now where I really don't want... Like, the internet tries to silence opinions on yeah. something just because you agree. Mm-hmm. And I loved what you said that, you know, you were welcomed into um, mm-hmm. the community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, they they knew you were non-Indigenous. And that's okay. And you came yeah. to learn. And I think so much of that now is people don't want that. They, they want the friction between. Yeah. And they don't want to welcome you into the conversation because mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're white or you're a woman or you're mm-hmm. a man or you're something, right? Like... Or you're straight, like, you have your place in your lane over here, do not come into my lane. Yeah. And it 
It's like, well, if you want me to try to understand, let, like, let's have an open conversation and help me see your perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's what I loved about that is people brought you in and let you see everything and will answer the questions you want to know. Exactly. And I think that's super important because if you come at ba- if you come at things where you're you're constantly hitting heads and fighting and arguing and calling each other names and accusing people of being a certain thing or a certain way like you know them, I think that's what's causing a lot of the friction um, between, you know, where you come from in life now, your background, whether it's man versus woman or black versus white or gay versus straight or mm-hmm. trans versus or all left mm-hmm. versus right. Everyone's coming at it like with a point to prove and to like hurt the other person almost instead of just having an open dialogue and, you know, trying to settle things with just an honest conversation and not getting angry. And I get it's hard. Yeah, I'll (laughs) never forget. um, I was interning at iPolitics during the inauguration and I was doing this piece about um, so American Canadian dual citizens. And I was looking at women, so women who were going to the Women's March and then women who were pro Donald Trump. And yes. because because that's what journalism is, right? Like it can't just be that one side. And obviously, like if anybody had said anything hateful or ridiculous, like I would have stopped it. But the headline writer wrote the headline that made it seem like it was women are marching on DC. So when people read the story and they realized I spoke with two women who were pro-Trump, the comment section like lost its mind. Um it was unreal. Like, first of all, because there were some people who were like, This march is dumb, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. And then like, I can't believe you had these women. But like that was so early after the election. Number one, like I, I still hold to it. That was good journalism. Like, good journalism is getting both sides, right? Like, there are women who like Donald Trump. Yeah. And they're part of that story because if you're trying to understand the election, you will never understand it if you only talk to the women who didn't vote for him or decided not to vote because they didn't like Hillary Clinton and then went in March. Like, that's... You have to talk to everybody. But I remember this one woman was telling me that her daughter is gay. And she was like, in order for us to have a relationship, we just can't talk about Donald Trump because she was saying her daughter was very concerned. And this was like before any policy happened, right, Mm -hmm. about Donald Trump. And the mother was saying, I just don't think it's going to be a thing. And I remember thinking like all of the points you were just saying, right, can you imagine like Christmas dinner and you feel like your mother's betrayed you? Because based on what that woman was saying, that's what I think her daughter felt like. And like that's even more personal than like Twitter or anything or than the comments on my story. Yeah. Um, it happens a lot now too with different yeah. generations. Like I know there are members of my family that are fiercely conservative, mm-hmm. and then members who are fiercely left wing. And like I'm talking like opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Like, and yeah, there's been shouting matches. I think you have to be able to talk to each other, right? Like you don't have to be best friends, but I think, and this is definitely something I have to work on too because I can get very heated and riled up as well. And there are certain things that people will say, and I'll get upset. Mm-hmm. But like. If we don't talk to each other, we don't know who those people are and we don't learn, right? And it's yeah. really important to figure out what different people are thinking. Like, even if your only goal is political and you just want to know for whatever reason, like, you can't do that by putting yourself in a bubble. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to touch on that um, women for Trump thing because this is something, and if you don't want to get into it, it's mm-hmm. fine, but something I've really been paying attention to Mm -hmm. more lately especially on the internet Mm -hmm. is a quote like the social justice warriors Mm -hmm. they kind of feel like they have at least to me the they think they have the authority to speak on behalf of everyone that they identify Mm -hmm. with whether it's speaking on behalf of all women Mm -hmm. um speaking on behalf of their their skin color their sexual identity they feel that i am going to speak and shed the truth about how everyone else feels mm-hmm. that 
I identify with. Yeah. And it's really interesting to me because I'm like, that's really not right. Yeah. Um, in a way. Um, like I get like you're coming at it for a good place mm-hmm. and you're you're trying to protect women, say, mm-hmm. for violence or harassment, which is which is fine. So one of the examples I use uh, get into is with dating, just modern dating, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, you know, on the Internet, it would be, you know, you see sometimes like don't approach a woman ever in public yeah. because that's encroaching mm-hmm. on whatever the reason it is. Um, you know, don't ever uh, slide into their DMs. Like, you know, it's just like, don't mm-hmm. ever do this. Don't ever do this. But then when you actually go on a date in reality, like, I would see most women are okay with certain things. Mm-hmm. Obviously never advocating for violence. But you, uh, if you were to just look at the internet, you'd be like, whoa, I can't do anything. But then in reality, you're like, oh, like, actually most people are seem pretty cool about that yeah i think to me it goes back to respecting boundaries because to the flip side to that i remember when the me too moment first started a lot of men were like i'm just never gonna meet with a woman and i was like great that's so good for our careers or like <laughs> like as a journalist that's so helpful. that's actually huge right um, now too, yeah still still yeah like... and like things like that i don't i don't find to be helpful right because it's like if i want to interview a male politician like i'm hoping he would give me the time yeah. right um but so actually I think a good example of that was another woman I interviewed for that pro-Trump piece. Um, not pro-Trump piece, but the women for and against Trump. Yeah. Um, so she was saying that she would never vote for a president who was, like, clearly anti-woman. And so I said, um, do you think that the comment he made about the... Uh, um, the comment that he made about the, like, grab them by the... Mm-hmm. Whatever. I don't know if I can say that. You could, um, but... We know what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, do you think that that was pro-woman? And it was funny because she'd probably answer that question a billion times, but she did kind of say, like, I like the way you asked it because every other journalist asked me as a woman. And she was like, for her, that wasn't like she wasn't voting on gender rights. She was voting for other reasons. Yeah. And she said that a lot of people like she was like, I don't speak for all women. Right. Like when I go on this panel, people aren't saying like, as a man, what do you think about Donald Trump doing this? And she was kind of saying like. I think that goes back to that social justice warrior thing that you were talking about, right? Like when people don't like it when anybody tries to speak for them. And I think she felt like she was supposed to be told, like she was supposed to kind of speak in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And like as a woman, and she was like, it doesn't matter. Like if I don't think it's not appropriate or if I don't think it's inappropriate, like whatever. Right. Yeah. No, it's, Mm -hmm. it's just been something I've been grappling with because yeah, on one hand you look at the internet and just, yeah. Like, you see the incel community now and they're like, you know, that's becoming a huge issue and mm-hmm. men just, it's a confusing time to be a man while understanding at the same time, it's always been a dangerous time to be a woman. Mm-hmm. Underst- I understand all of that. But yeah, when you look at what some things people say, like that, you know, um, for instance, you know, uh, white men seem think that they're under attack a lot or, you know, that their their being is invalid, invalid in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have people. Uh, what was it? Esquire. Um, they released that middle uh, class American kid and got absolutely shit on. Yeah. Because we're like, oh, like, what is, mm-hmm. you know, a white person ever had to, you know, mm-hmm. be upset about like white privilege, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to get at with all of this is like. Well, I understand that there are groups in, in culture and society that have absolutely experienced mm-hmm. um, horrific things happen. 
and white men have always been kind of at the top of the pedestal where not a lot happened. Um, it doesn't necessarily invalidate everything else that they experience. Um, yeah. And that's what I think a lot of men feel like. I think, and again, right, like I took human rights. Mm -hmm. and So I think sometimes like it's hard for me because I think one thing that I learned is that I can make it not personal. So like whenever somebody says something like I'm white, right? Yeah. Whenever somebody says white privilege, I know they're not saying caroline you didn't work hard yeah they're saying caroline you worked hard but you also had a different set of circumstances and i think that some people like can't look at it both ways and i think too um i think that it is important that people recognize like you can work hard and not be qualified for something right i think part of what we're seeing too i think especially with a lot of jobs and like school applications is that because we're opening it to more people the competition pool is doubling and tripling, right? And people mm -hmm. who maybe used to always be accepted are no longer, and they don't understand why, right? And it's okay to not be the best or, like you said, the top of the barrel anymore, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that there aren't people who go too far because there are, but I also think that at the same time, like, it's it's okay to realize that maybe there was somebody better than you and maybe they were a person of color or yeah. maybe they were a woman, right? Like those things are okay but i think people have this really hard time when like the second you say white privilege i think most people go to oh you're saying me but you don't know that my dad this and i grew up this way and it's not about that i don't think from the human rights perspective that i learned mm -hmm. it's more about what certain things afford you just based on the color of your skin interesting um so like if you look at some of those studies people have done right where they've done the exact same resume but it has like a white sounding name and a black sounding name that would be a good example of mm -hmm. that right and that's still pretty systematic. Yeah, and I just, I think sometimes it's, and it almost goes back to the reconciliation thing, right? Like, people take things so personally when we bring yeah. things up like that. And that being said, I do think that, again, like, there are things we can all do to be more understanding of each other. But I certainly think that's where, at least to me, those things kind of fall in. Okay, interesting. Yeah. My um, mom is, like, texting me so much. I think she wants to get dinner. Just a second. Okay. Your mom. My mom, uh, yes. Mom, I'm on a podcast. <laughs> um... One thing I wanted to bring up as we were talking about, um, and you can keep texting, it's cool. Um, <laughs> uh, but talking about how the news cycle changes a lot. It does. Um, but there's that thing, and you you mentioned it earlier, is the Cat Lake First Nation. Yes. Uh, I don't want to say reserve. Did you I... could say First Nation. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, you know, there's... As I was researching this to talk about, because mm -hmm. I wanted to see both sides of the story. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, you have a certain group of, that is advocating that the government government needs to do more for these people, mm -hmm. um, fix the housing, mm -hmm. uh, get them, move them, whatever it is. But then you have other people, you know, and, and as a journalist, you can understand that I'm not advocating for these people, but just mm -hmm. demonstrating on what they're saying is why is it the government's responsibility to mm -hmm. help them? They get enough. I know some people say that um, leaders or chiefs steal mm -hmm. the money. Um, why don't, before we get into that, what from your reporting and what you gather, what's going on there specifically? And yeah. then we can kind of get into what you may think can be done or yeah. help. Well, so first of all, um, it's been in a state of emergency for well over two months now. It's a housing crisis. Okay. Um, Cat Lake is very remote. Um, apparently, with the winter storms, the actual community road, they were having trouble getting people in and out of the community. 
Um, there are mold problems specifically that are actually impacting people's health. Different people have had to be flown out to hospitals. Yeah, that's the one I saw the most, that kids yeah. are getting yeah. rashes and yeah, exactly. can't breathe and stuff like that. Um, I know that there was also underwater advisory as well. I know that I think one of the advisories have been lifted, but I don't know if that would necessarily alleviate the whole issue. Um, and then there's also problems with just the housing units that are there and the overcrowding of the housing units. So okay. Charlie Angus is the NDP MP who is closest to the area and he's mentioned this a lot in house of commons he's essentially used all this time to talk about it and he said like um he was saying that like there are 20 people living in these tiny units and it's a moldy unit anyway so i think it's important people understand that issue um one of the things i've heard people often say is why don't you just leave the reserve yeah um i hear that, that a lot yeah but again right um what a lot of researchers and scholars will tell you is that part of colonization and genocide is that you lose your culture. So people feel, and again, I can't speak for everybody at all, but I think people do feel a certain connection to their culture, right? And you do that based on location. So you can grow up in a space where you can have ceremony and tradition and there aren't going to be people judging you or mocking you for it, right? And you're close to your family members. And so I think people forget the power of that, especially when you're a group that has survived that sort of thing. Um, to the question about, like, why are we helping again, right? Like, these are communities that have been under water bowl advisory. People are getting very sick. I think people don't understand that, like you said, like, these are children that are getting air backed out, right? And mm -hmm. it's a very cold time of year up in northern Ontario, right? Like, this is not an ideal situation at all. And our government also does help out people who aren't on First Nations. Like, if there were people living that way, too, they would be sending aid to them as well. So I think people forget that sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, Are they getting aid? Like, is there so, help or is there is it tied up in bureaucratic Well, like, the biggest tape? problem is that the newest Indigenous Services Minister was just shuffled, Seamus O'Regan. So he's totally new to this file, right? Right. Um, and actually, Indigenous peoples were pretty upset that Jane Philpott was shuffled because they felt that she was like a real sharpshooter and was good at her job. Um, so he's new to this and he certainly, I think, is under a lot of scrutiny. But he was saying that they were sending housing units up and then he was saying that they were going to talk with some of the leaders. But that was all I had kind of heard so far. And then okay. at one point it had been mentioned that a water advisory had been lifted. Interesting. So, mm -hmm. He's a former TV guy. He is a former TV so guy. interesting yeah. that he's put on the file and... Yes. I mean, is there a thing that like regular people like us, is it is it bringing up the the issue more uh, in the media, whether it's through mm -hmm. podcasts or journalism? Is it financial? Is it like a crowdsourcing? Like, how can this be rectified? Because it, it just mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like governments really in anything. But in this particular case, move fast enough for what's happening yeah i think especially with it being an election year right i doubt they just can't get much done because there's a june deadline um and you can't put a band-aid on a systemic issue right like the mold house a moldy house is a symptom of a way larger problem mm -hmm. um but people can take action i mean you have mps you can write to them i know that sounds silly but like you can call them you can write to them you can say if you want this job back does it the, do does something. it work because i hear that all the time well right you hear that MP. a lot in the states but i don't know how many people do that here right yeah so I would I would suggest giving it a try. Um, you can vote, right? A lot of people don't do that, but you could vote on the person who you think, like, say your issue, like, say you've heard about Cat Lake and it's shaking you to your core, like, vote for the person who you think would actually work to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but then to your point about Kickstarter, so there was a story that we covered quite a bit about the Res Girls, which is a hockey team um, from Northern Ontario, and they had never been to Ottawa before for a hockey tournament. 
And I believe it was a non-Indigenous family that basically fundraised for them to go. Like, they'd heard about the girls and they thought, like, isn't that cool? We're going to get them to Ottawa. And then the next year, their um, ice pad needed to be redone. So the same family was like, well, we'll just do another Kickstarter. And, like, that kind of thing actually took off. Really? eh? So I think for people who are looking for action, like, that's certainly a model that seemed to work in that regard. Um, And I even, it's funny, too, because going back to our fascination with America, and I don't want to take away from what this person did at all. So I really hope people don't take it this way. But um, a truck driver, I think, from Ottawa started driving bottles of water to Flint, Michigan, where they were having the water crisis. I think they still are, too. Yeah, like, all, like, ev- like she did this yeah. like, every week or something, which is amazing, right? But people could also do that here. Yeah. Um, where is Cat Lake? It's near Timmins, James Bay. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so it's not quite Thunder Bay area. No. Okay. Yeah. So, hey, Timmins population, let's go out there, because... I have tons of listeners in Timmins. Oh, there you go. Um, so do you, do you think there's like a resolution? Um, like, is it the prognosis of the issue good? <laughs> um, I think, again, I think election years make a lot of action really hard. Right. Um, okay. Because you are under such a time crunch and you kind of... What you learn in an election year in the last sitting is like, did a government sit around and kind of do nothing or did they get to work, right? And then also you have reshuffles and things. So I think I can't say for certain because I don't know Seamus O'Regan enough and what his like profile is, right? Um He was veterans before, right? He was. Okay. Um I but I don't know how well versed he is on indigenous issues. Cause the other mm-hmm. thing too is like for him to just jump in on that is pretty dangerous as well, right? I don't know what leaders he's communicating with, um, if he's going more of a grassroots approach. So I do think that any solution will be community-based where the solution isn't putting it on the shoulders of the community to fix things. Like if they're telling community members to fix the houses, Mm -hmm. that's a problem. But if they're saying, here's some money for a construction company on the resident, like on the reservation, right? Like that would be helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, And if they're working with the people who have lived on the first nation, I think that's where the solution would lie. Okay. Um, Finally, as we make our way through Mm -hmm. the Canadian issues, um, can end on this Interesting story that's probably mm-hmm. going to soak up a lot of your morning tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I know it's not necessarily an Indigenous issue, mm-hmm. but the United We Roll. Yes. That's coming on the Capitol. So yeah. again, this is February 18th. They are coming from Red Deer. They are. And another one's coming from Quebec. Yep. And there's supposed to be 200 trucks or something. I know. And this will certainly impact me because I'm going to be at the Hill tomorrow. Um, oh, and that's... That's where they're going. <laughs> yeah. So... Are you, are you pretty, like, do you know, like, are you well-versed in the subject? Or? Yeah, I, I, so I have been covering it at work only because although, like, it's not maybe, like, a cut-and-dry Indigenous issue, it is the issue of pipelines. Yes. And we always like to be aware of what's going on yes. with pipelines. Um, because especially, like, you mentioned what's so wet and right, that, that whole issue is about the coastal gas like pipeline. Um, generally speaking, is mm-hmm. Indigenous communities for or against? Because I think I've heard a little bit of, both. Yeah, so I wouldn't want to diagnose it any way myself. So obviously What's a Wet Nation was like one of the biggest stories that we could talk about. And that was a story that was very anti-pipeline. Yes. yes, it was. And that also then brings into questions of like hereditary chiefs and kind of the structures of First Nations. And does the government honor yeah. um, First Nation? But that being said, Coastal Gaslink, sorry, the Coastal Gaslink did point out that they did have First Nations that have, so for every kind of track of the pipeline they did have first nations that were signed on an agreement okay 
So that was something that Coastal Gaslink would say. And actually, there was an Aboriginal association out west a few weeks ago that held a rally in support of pipelines, saying that it's not like not every Indigenous person is against it because for some communities, it's it's a financial, it's very helpful financially, right? Mm-hmm. It gives people jobs, it gives people yeah. money. So I think it's really hard, especially for me as a non-Indigenous journalist, to see it either way. But I think different communities have different priorities, right? Yeah. And maybe those priorities are just reflected through how they're engaging with this mm-hmm. issue. Um, now, when I first heard this, and I think a mm-hmm. lot of people, this was supposed to be, I th- my understanding was this was the, the Yellow Vest movement. Yeah. Now, upon further research and reading and listening, that it's not 100% that mm-hmm. the Yellow Vest movement, which is still quite small in Canada, is kind of tagging into it. Yeah. Because they're more... I mean, I don't know a lot about what was going on in France, but mm-hmm. they here it would seem that it was more like more of the racist, more yeah. of like the conservative parts so of that movement. It was interesting because um, when this Aboriginal Association did it, I was looking at their website when I was covering the story, and they actually said on their poster like, "This is not yellow vest." Um, so they wanted to distinguish themselves. Yeah, they really did. Um, but. And it's funny because, like you said, I'm very confused personally by the role of Yellow Vest in this because I was looking at different people who were like, I support this, hashtag Yellow Vest. And it's like it's not really being owned in a way that I can see like this is a Yellow Vest thing. But I also don't see any of the leaders kind of saying like this isn't right. Like it's been very kind of branded as we just want Justin Trudeau to hear our voices and we're going to drive on over and make some noise. And that's all about pipeline. Which is fine. Yeah. Pipeline carbon tax. Um, Carbon tax is another big one. Um, But... It does seem to me like, is Yellow Vest a part of it? Isn't like, and I think we all need a lot of clarity, right? Like if there's going to be two days of Yellow Vest protests on Parliament Hill. It could get dangerous. Well, it could get. And so the other thing too, right, is that the drivers aren't telling anybody their route to the hill tomorrow. Oh, so there's a lot that I would be. There's a lot of questions I have. Um, I certainly think it's legitimate to cover. Again, going back to our earlier point about voices like that we need to hear in an election season, I do think it's a voice we need to hear. I don't know if a yellow vest voice is one that we need to hear, though. Mm. And I'm I'm interested, like, if there are over 200 trucks coming our way, there could have easily been somebody who jumped on who thought this was the yellow vest thing, right? Like, yeah. And I just think a lot of this hasn't been clarified. Yeah. I mean, I, I heard it was from uh, CBC. Mm-hmm. They said that there was a small minority in the group that yeah. was Yellow Vest. Mm-hmm. And from my understanding here, it's very anti-immigration. Yeah. Um, which is worrisome to me because people who are, and I'm, this is me generalizing, which I just said I don't like people who do this. But mm-hmm. like it would, it seems at least through social media lens that people who are anti-immigration are also seem to be pr- more prone to violence. Or, you know, anger, which worries me that things might get out of hand. Yeah. And I've I've also heard rumblings that maybe there will be a counter protest. Right. And I think uh, it would be one thing to have a counter protest if it was, you know, again, we're going to make some noise with our trucks like counter protest. Fine. Um, it could be quite another thing if it's actually yellow vest protest. Right. Or if the minority that are the yellow vest decide that they're just really going to make it known. Mm hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, that being said, I'm not a fan of fear mongering myself. I'm still going to the hill. Um, I'm planning on leaving like right after the morning. So like house of commons isn't until two, but I'm giving myself like hours to get there. 
just because they're supposed to be leaving our empire tomorrow morning probably around the same time i'll go to the hill yeah. um but i just think i would be interested if there was somebody we could talk to tomorrow to kind of find out who's part of this why is somebody allowed to be a part of this mm-hmm. what is the actual message here like if you're waiting like do you plan on going out and asking or anything or i do well actually so i'm actually supposed to have coffee with a close friend which i'm gonna do at some point that day too and i have an, a freelance article that i'll probably edit a little bit too but i'm gonna have like a chunk of hours between there so i am planning on going and seeing what's up yeah um what do you what's your i want to end on this on mm-hmm. something a little less politically and all mm-hmm. that those are all important issues and i encourage mm-hmm. everyone listening to do some research and check mm-hmm. it out especially the uh snc lavalin case because mm-hmm. that's that's gonna take up a lot of the time but yeah getting back to you personally yes like what is like what do you hope to do with you know what you're doing now mm-hmm. with journalism like do you want to be like a all-star reporter for channel 5 news or that's a phenomenal question <laughs> um I don't know. And I think I'm okay mm. with that. I think whenever I have not had a, a set in stone plan, I've always kind of gone for an opportunity that I never thought Which I would. Great, yeah. And I've always been happy with how it turned out. Um, but I I really love journalism and I really want to stay in the field for quite some time. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that would look like. Um, I'm cognizant that this field can be tough um, and that it's not perfect. We've touched on all of this, but I think it is somewhere I'd like to stay. I personally really love magazine features. I love I'd love to get to do some investigative work and maybe some foreign work at some point. Mm-hmm. I also really love the power of radio because I think, you know, getting to chat with you here right now. And I think for a lot of people, it's way more comfortable to do that than it is with a camera on your face. Yeah, 100%. And so I want to be able to explore maybe what stories I can help share mm-hmm. through this kind of medium. Have you ever thought about a podcast? I have. I have <laughs> been a little bit, actually. Um so that is something I may consider at some point. And then I think like way later in life, I could see myself getting involved in politics only because I'm so interested. Yeah. I could see myself like working on a campaign or something. But that would be I think I would have made a clear decision at that point to yeah. leave journalism. And yeah. That. What I love about things like this mm-hmm. that are kind of like whether it's, you know, like we talked about earlier, you doing your mm-hmm. own like someone doing their own thing of journalism, mm-hmm. the podcast, YouTube videos. It's it's a lot more lax and you can actually sit down and talk about things there's no time constraint it's not like exactly i only have two minutes to get this out and Mm -hmm. just like try to burst it out it's great it's super interesting but so you on it like you obviously think like there's an importance of journalism still today i do i think everything aside i still i still find real value in it and i i feel like in my own way i'm making a difference that i'm morally comfortable with which Mm -hmm. i know sounds very intense but i think maybe Having taken five years of human rights with journalism, you tend to operate a certain way. Um, Everything we talked about today, I don't think we would have known if it hadn't been for a journalist. Um, And that doesn't mean that they get it wrong. Uh, Sorry, it doesn't mean that they get it right all the time. It Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that journalism's perfect. But at the end of the day, I think it is still needed. And also just based on all of the different people I've had the chance to chat with, there are so many stories that people want to share and maybe don't know who to go to or are afraid somebody won't trust them. And there are just stories waiting to be uncovered across this country every day. And one of the other things that when you're asking about the future, I love, I mentor a journalism student right now from the school I went to, Mm. and I love getting to work with young journalists. So that's also something that I hope continues to be a part. But I would say, um, and I don't know if this is like a good place to end it. Like, I think it can be very tough sometimes to be a young person, especially graduating from a journalism school, because you feel like maybe you should just go into comms and, you know, that'll be easy. 
Um, and if you feel like you can do something else and be happy, you should probably go do that. But if you feel like journalism is the only thing you should do, go for it. Like, mm-hmm. I have a great job. Um, I get to talk on a radio show. I'm 24 years old and I get to talk on a radio show every single day. Like, how cool is that? Um, I get to do all these freelance stuff. Like, you've invited me on your podcast. It It's hard work, but then... I go to the House of Commons and there are so many things I get to do because I'm a journalist, right? And I think if you really, really care about it and you want to make it work, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but you can. Mm -hmm. And I think you're going to have some of the best years of your life. You're going to interview and meet people you've never met before. And you're going to go to things like a powwow. Like I'd never done that before. And so I really just, I know it seems (laughs) a silly thing to say, and I hope I'm not getting too sentimental, but I think if this is something you want to do, journalism school or not, like, start writing start practicing reach out to journalists and mm-hmm. i think we're always going to need you like there is somebody here right now who one of your 100 listeners is listening right now and they don't know that they're going to uncover a story one day and i really believe that or there are so many people who don't know that like they're going to be that person to help facilitate that story mm-hmm. listen one <laughs> this episode might get two thousand a hundred thousand <laughs> one day okay so the 200 yeah. listening now yeah, um, there could be way more of you. But one, like one thing before, yes, I ended, uh, and it's not sort of a question, more as like mm-hmm. a comment mm-hmm. is. Now I went to the same school around the same time you did. Oh, cool. Um, I took communication, mm-hmm. so I was just in the other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that really struck me because of being in communication is the amount of young people, especially young women mm-hmm. such as yourself, mm-hmm. who I have not seen the, a level of passion Mm. in a lot of things Mm -hmm. like some of these people especially these young women showed for journalism Mm -hmm. that were willing to break down doors Mm -hmm. go out anywhere i mean i've had members work for me who you know working out east now um who are featured in you know canadian press or mclean's or Mm -hmm. like all these major publications and one's writing for the ottawa citizen and it, it amazes me that, like, I don't know where it came from, but, mm-hmm. like, I don't know if it's it's a, an ongoing thing or if it was just kind of like a, a crop around, you know, millennials or the last end. But truly amazing to see the level of passion that went in, like, that people are showing for the journalism profession and writing and sharing stories and, mm-hmm. um, to many people's surprise, ethical journalism. Like, yeah. strong... Uh, journalistic principles which is like it it honestly fascinates me like and it's truly interesting I it inspires me every day I think that's a big part of the reason why I do what I do um I love seeing I think a lot of female journalists who are really good about uplifting each other for their work and crediting each other it can be a really competitive industry Mm -hmm. but I also think to your point a lot of millennials do that I actually we work with so many different outlets here and somebody from a different outlet had a source reach out to them about an indigenous story and then he reached out to me and that's such a decent thing to do. Yeah. But I think the thing is like, obviously competition keeps our industry alive. So I'm not saying let that die, but he realized like we're all on the same side. Like at the end of the day, our side is to get these stories out there. Right. So if he thought this was a person who could maybe have like a few different interviews be shared, like then that's the same side. And I think that that's something that I want to do more of. But I also encourage like other people, like obviously don't be like naive, but if you can work together, like we need to do more. Like we need to support each other as a whole, as an industry, not just within our own newsrooms. Mm -hmm. I get that way with radio too, that Mm -hmm. as internet takes over, Mm -hmm. um, it's becoming less and less of us competing against each other and us competing against other platforms Mm -hmm. and making it relevant and keeping it relevant. And a lot, I would love to see more 
working together well, in and the media. Well, and even see what can your platforms do together, right? Like, yeah. can you tell a, a great investigative work that is part podcast but part digital journalism, mm-hmm. right? Like, instead of always relying on not the same old, same old, but like because I like I listen to podcasts all the time, but what can you do that brings all of that together and that's different and that really does this rich storytelling that I think people are looking for, right? I think that's the demand at the end of the day, right? Going back to what we talked about way at the beginning, like a panel about a tweet is not a story, mm-hmm. but a really intense podcast with like a character list and all of these different like people and resources for you to download, that's a story. Mm-hmm. And that's one that people will listen to and read. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for coming on. This was like amazing. Oh, well, so, thank you for thinking of me. Um, where can people find you? Where can people uh, read your work? Yeah. Um, you, you can do a bit of a plug. Um, well, thanks. <laughs> um, you can find me at the C-O-N-E-I-L-L on Twitter. Um, I tweet there. I don't have a ton of followers. I'd love some more. Um, yeah, let's get her going because she live tweets House of Commons <laughs> and it's actually pretty interesting. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and then I write for Carspace, which does some great journalism about women and wellness. And I definitely suggest that you pay for their journalism. They are subscription based, but it's cheaper than Netflix. So you should pay for it. Um, uh, and not not to get away from the closing remarks, no, that's but okay. also pay for your content. Yeah, pay for your content. Like that's how you get good content. Mm-hmm. P- pay for content. I agree. <laughs> Um, of course, everybody, you can follow us uh, on Instagram and Facebook, the Life in Red podcast, and on Twitter, Life in Red Pod, because it doesn't have enough characters for my whole name. Caroline O'Neill, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Ryan. This was so much fun. All right. Bye, everybody. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.